so good to see uh, our guests this morning, and uh, welcome to our Easter services, and looking forward to a good time afterwards with the youngins, and uh, youngins is Southern for children, in case you didn't know that, um, and we'll, uh, we'll go outside and have our egg hunt, enjoy to see so many of them out there at the first hour as well, and appreciate the work that's gone into that. Uh, take your Bibles and go to the book of Matthew, or Mark rather, Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15. And as we uh, approach this text this morning, uh, just to give our folks a reminder of where we've been uh, for the last uh, little over two years, we've been going through a series on the book of Mark, and we've taken the sections of Mark and walked through those sections a little bit at a time. Uh, the first section of Mark asked the question, who is Jesus? Who is he? Um, and the answer to that question, it gets answered in Mark chapter 8, when Peter declares, thou art the Christ the Son of the living God, that he was very clearly the Messiah, the anointed one that would come. They obviously missed what it meant to be the Messiah because when they heard Messiah, they saw a reigning king that was going to kick Rome out and establish Israel as the superpower that it once was. And so they missed the point of what the Messiah came to do. And so then Jesus begins to unfold what the role of the Messiah was. And the Messiah came to be a suffering servant. And we see that culmination when Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to serve, uh, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so why did Jesus come? He came to be our payment for our sins and to take our place. He died in our place. And we talk about a substitutionary atonement. That Christ died in my place. He took my sins and gave me his righteousness. That was the role that Jesus came to fulfill. That was always God's plan. It was to come and to save men from their sins. And then the last several weeks we've been on this journey to the cross. And this is the journey that takes us from where Jesus makes that declaration. And then through his examination and his passion week up into the day of his crucifixion. And here we find ourselves on Resurrection Sunday at this place of the crucifixion. And uh, it is so important that we are able to clearly answer who Jesus is, why he came, and then what does that mean to us? How do we act on that? What's the next step for us as we walk forward into that statement? And so if you found your place there in Mark 15, we're going to begin reading in verse number 15. And we're going to read down through several verses. If you found your place and you're able, would you stand with me in honor of the Word of God? And let's read this together this morning. So Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium. They called together the whole band and they clothed him with a purple and plaited a corn crown of thorns and put it upon his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing their knees worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. They compelled one Simon of Cyrene who passed by coming out of the country the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, 
which is being interpreted the place of a skull. They gave him a drink, wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments and casting lots upon them what every man should take. It was the third hour and they crucified him. The superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on the right hand and the other on his left. The scripture was fulfilled which saith he was numbered with the transgressors. They that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the King of the Jews, descend now from the cross, that we may see and believe. And they that were crucified with him reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them heard, some of them that stood by, when they heard it, said, Behold, he calleth Elias. One ran and filled a sponge of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let it alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice, gave up the ghost. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. The centurion which stood over against him saw that he cried out, cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the Word of God this morning. Father, I pray that what is being said here this morning would be uh, driven home into the hearts of each person here. And Lord, as we've already requested, I pray that there be one today that does not know you as their Savior. That, Father, they would settle that in their heart today. Father, we pray that you would call those that are away from you back to you this morning. Father, do a work in our midst that only you can do. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. You can be seated there. As we walked into this account for the last several weeks, the priests were seeking for a way to betray Jesus. Jesus had put them on notice by casting the money changers out of the temple and now they make it their direct objective to find the reason to latch hold of Jesus and to crucify him. The people had held him as a prophet, and so they were trying to avoid the scrutiny of the crowd. Judas comes to them and agrees for 30 pieces of silver to betray him. Judas receives the money, and the Bible tells us that Judas was a thief, and he was a greedy man, and and we find him going for 30 pieces of silver and betraying the Son of God and taking this money to himself and, of course, regretting it afterwards. And I'll be reminded that what the love of this world will do to the hearts of men causes us to miss eternity if we're not careful. We set our eyes on the affections that are here. As we said a few weeks ago, Judas kissed the very door of heaven and spends eternity in hell. What a grievous thought. The Passover, of course, is at hand, and we walk through that storyline as Jesus told his disciples of their betrayal and 
Each man wondered if it was them that would betray him. And then he told them that, hey, this cup is my blood and this bread is my body. And he points to the sacrifice he's about to make. He tells of his death. And everybody there says, no, 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 you're not going to die. You're not going to suffer. Then he says, no, you're going to all forsake me. And yet no one believed him. Peter being the loudest of the crowd, he said, no, Lord, and we saw last week as Pastor Caleb taught us, is that Peter said, I, he, hey, if everybody else denies you, I'm not going to deny you. Jesus says, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And of course, Peter hears that rooster crowing and goes out and weeps bitterly. Jesus in the garden, we walk through that account and how great heaviness was upon him. And yet, even in this hour of darkness, he says, Father, not my will, but thine be done. Not what I desire, not my wishes, but yours. And this is really a central truth of Christian living, is that we would lay down our life and see that it is his purpose and his plan that we are yielded to and following. If God has chosen failure, then so be it. If God has chosen separation, if God has chosen so be it. We see the blood dripping from his brow there in the garden. We see agony as he cries out to his father on three occasions in this hour of prayer. The songwriter wrote these words many, many years ago, man of sorrows. What a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a savior. Prayer has ended. The agony is past of that hour, and he's facing the unspeakable agony of the cross. And yet now Jesus, fully resting in the will of his Father, looks now as the soldier approaches with their band of men and Judas in the front. A kiss is exchanged. Some words are shared. A sword is swung. A healing takes place. A rebuke fleeing of those who are around Jesus. He enters into the illegal trial that we saw two weeks ago. He stands being tried. They look for witnesses to agree. They can find nobody to agree. No charge can be laid to his account that would bring guilt on him. And Peter, same time Jesus is being tried, Peter is being accused of being a part of them. And Peter, of course, vehemently and increasingly so, I don't know who he is. I don't know who he is. May God strike me dead if I'm one of his. Peter denies him. And so this is where we left the Lord in our journey. They have a very quick trial the morning after. They put kind of a rubber stamp on the fact that he is blaspheming and we need to send him off to Pilate and now Pilate can examine him and Pilate can pronounce death upon him and we're going to tell Pilate that he has forbidden us to give tribute to Caesar. The mocking and the beating that ensued that evening, they blindfold him and smote him and ask him, who smote you? The evening trial came to an end. The formal assembly begins in the morning hours. And where do we find the Lord? No decent rest that night, no decent meal, no dignity or comfort afforded to the King of Kings. The creator of the world is being abused by his own creation. They put him on notice, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, you say that I am. Your teachings point to me. 
Your scripture points to me. The Father has testified of me. Even you say that I am the Son of God. Rage that comes from these men who would not know the truth. So he stands before Pilate now. The governor of the area, the Roman symbol of power at that time in this backwater town. We want this man dead. Pilate, what did he do? What, what did he accomplish? Well, he forbid to pay tribute to Caesar. But if you remember when he was actually asked that question, shall we give tribute to Caesar or no? And they tried to set him up and catch him in his words. And he looked at them and he says, here's what you should do. Why don't you render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's? And so they lie here even. Pilate questions him for a bit and then sends him to Herod. Who is Herod? Herod is this puppet king that the Roman government has allowed their reign to have some position of authority to try to keep the peace. He's not of the line and lineage of David. He is a separate line altogether. And so what do we see? We see the capital king of the Jews standing before the little K king of the Jews. And Herod thinks that he's going to see a miracle. He wants to see a sideshow. Show me some kind of miracle. Show me something. Prove who you are. Jesus answers never a word. Herod was not trying Jesus, but Jesus was trying Herod. You and I, as we consider the claim of Christ, remember you may pass your judgment on who you say Jesus is, but ultimately he has the final word. Herod's mocking arrays Jesus in the royal robe, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate declares, I find no fault in him. Herod founds no fault in him worthy of death. I'll beat him and let him go, and I'll, I'll give him back over to you. And, and yet the crowd is not satisfied with this. They insist that he not be released. There is one that is guilty of treason and even murder. His name is Barabbas. And they said, give us Barabbas instead, and you, you keep Jesus and let Barabbas go free. The guilty is taken for the innocent. The one who should have died is set free and the one who was guilty of no sin and no crime is being condemned to death. And Pilate in his weakness, he looks at this crowd of people and he says, what shall I do with him? Which is Jesus, what do you want me to do with him? And the crowd stirred up by the religious uh, zealots of their time, they're all stirred into a frenzy and they cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Why? What evil has he done? What reason would we crucify him? Crucify him. Crucify him. This is the same city that just a few weeks earlier had stood outside the city with palm branches and laid down at his feet and said, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And now the fickle hearts of these evil men have turned. Jesus had surrendered himself to the will of the Father, is now being surrendered to the will of men. He who had created all things is now abused by the very creation. A cat of nine tails. From my earliest memory, I've heard teachers teach on this cat of nine tails. This whip with ends on it with glass and bone and metal and it was intended to disembowel a man. It was intended to rip a man up in such a way that he would never think of crossing Rome. And if anybody saw it, 
they would never mess with Rome. They would take that whip and wrap it around his body and and maybe you've seen images of something similar that a movie had put on and yet I don't think it all quite encompasses all that took place. As that cat of nine tails tore the body of our Lord. The crown of thorns they forced upon his head now stands in mockery of his royalty. They pluck his beard from his face as they torture the giver of life. The blows are coming faster and faster now as they fall upon his head time and time again. The reed that they're striking with him is driving the thorns into his flesh and the body as it swells up make the thorns and the scalp be one and the same as they swell around it. The blood is pooling at his feet. Many men would not have remained conscious to this point. And yet regardless of the numbers of torturous blows that fell, his life remained in him. Spittle runs down his face. As mocking men spit on the face of the precious Lord Jesus, and I can picture the blood and the spit mingling together and running over the precious lips of our Lord. And what was it that he said that brought him to this point? Well, let's examine his words for a moment. When he looked at the young lady who was of 12 years old, who had died in her mother and father's house, and he looked at her and he said, Talitha Kumai, or my daughter, arise. Were these the words those lips spoke that brought him to this end? Or maybe it was, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. Or maybe it was when he stood on the bow of the ship and he said, peace be still. Or maybe it's when he looked at the children and he said, suffer the children to come unto me. Or maybe it's when he stood outside of Lazarus' tomb and he said, Lazarus, come forth. Maybe when he looked to his father and said, thy will be done. But ultimately, they crucified him because he said, I am. I am the son of God. Notice now, no words of vitriol come out of his mouth. I can be very, very honest with you this morning and say I don't think I would have made it to this point. Physically, I don't know that I'd have made it to this point, And I definitely know I wouldn't have made it to this point without saying something back. Who do you think you are? Why are you doing this? When I get off this cross, but yet none of this comes from the lips of our Savior. No threat of retaliation. No looking down upon the crowd around them and, and planning or plotting or throwing words of anger toward them. You see the soldiers in mocking jest bow their knee. First Peter tells us that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. He opened not his mouth. As a lamb before the shears is dumb, Isaiah prophesied of him, that he would not send these railing accusations back at them. The songwriter added this line, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Before Pilate one last time, the decree to crucify him is at hand. Pilate struggling with his own conscience and yet not having the character of conviction. He looks at Jesus and says, don't you know that I have the power to let you go? Don't you know that if you would just give me something to hang my hat on here, I can let you go? And Jesus answered, thou couldst have no power at all against me. 
except it were given thee from above. Therefore he that delivereth, delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Give me a basin of water, Pilate calls for it. And in vain he begins to wash his hands and he tries to wash the guilt of his crime from his hands. He says, I have nothing to do with this man. I'm not guilty of this, his death. This is on you. And he begins to wash his hands. And I think in so many ways, just as men today try in vain to wash away the guilt of their own sin by their own righteous deeds and religious works. And they do their best to wash it away. And let me just say something. As a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning, there is no work you can do to pay your sin debt. There is no righteous act you can perform. There is no religious deed that you can do. You can climb to every monument. You can be baptized in every baptistry. You can join any church anywhere, and none of that will atone for your sins. None of that will wash it away. And Pilate could stand there for the last 2,000 years and pour water over his hands, and no amount of water would wash away the sin. And the songwriter, I think, says it best when he said, What can wash away my sin? Nothing. But the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. As sinners this morning condemned before a holy God, there is nothing that makes us right but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. There's no other hope. Simon of Cyrene is grabbed from the crowd, carry the cross. Up the road to Golgotha they go, they walk bearing the cross and the shame being led outside the city, and in Mark 15, 23, they offer him a sedative, wine and myrrh mixed together. He refuses it. Not going to take anything. They offer him this. He refuses. They lead him to the top of the hill, and the hammer blows begin to fall. The Bible tells us they pierced his hands and his feet. Again and again, the hammer falls as the nails are driven into his hands and his feet, and slowly the cross is lifted into his place, and it comes to its peak and falls into the hole in the barren rock at the thud at the bottom. The thud, no doubt, joints, jerks bones from their joints. Prophecy is fulfilled. He says, my bones stare at thee. Now he hangs before heaven and earth. And the words from John 3 echo back to us. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The passers-by mock him. We thought you would tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. The soldiers cast lot for his clothes. The chief priest said he saved others himself he cannot save. A sign above his head reads, King of the Jews. Probably the most clear truth of that day, not spoken by our Lord, was on that sign. And yet even that statement of truth was meant to be a mockery. Jesus, King of the Jews. What are the words that he'll say from the cross? He's there now hanging. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Two malefactors, one on the right hand and the left, mocking at first, one turns and asks for mercy. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What will Jesus say to this man who just mocked him? Verily I say unto thee, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise. You see grace coming from his lips now. You see John, the beloved. 
Mary, his mother. Can you imagine what must have going through Mary's mind? She has to remember when the angels came and told her of his birth. She has to remember when the shepherds showed up and praised him. She has to remember when the kings showed up from the east and they worshipped him. And no doubt she remembers when he said to her, I must be about my father's business. She remembers the water turned to wine. And John remembers, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. John remembers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What will he say to them? In this hour of agony, he's concerned himself with the guilt of those who crucified him. He's concerned himself with <clears throat> the, the one that's being crucified with him and gives him hope of a paradise. And now he looks at his mother and he said, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And he cares for his mother as he's finishing his earthly ministry. Now we come to the sixth hour. Darkness falls on all the earth. The sun refuses to shine in the darkest day of all history. And for three hours he hangs in darkness and suffers for the sins of all humanity. Imagine what it must have been like. For the majority of Jerusalem was going on its normal merry way. And all of a sudden, darkness fell. Why is darkness here? When will the darkness go away? Will there ever be light again? The confusion that must have been in that hour, and yet for three hours the sun refused to shine. The stars held back their glitter. And about the ninth hour, as he hung there, he cries out those words, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible tells us at the end of Matthew, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Hebrews tells us, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Why was he forsaken? He was forsaken so you and I will never know what it is to be forsaken. We'll never understand what it is to be abandoned. And he cried out in that hour to show us the suffering that his soul bore. He was forsaken so I could be accepted. He was left alone so I would never know what it is to truly be alone. He calls out again, I thirst. This time they offer him vinegar alone. Some tell us that this would have been used as a stimulant. He takes this vinegar. Now is the moment. Now, with a loud voice, and often this is recorded for us in the Gospels, that he spoke with a loud voice. What's the implications of that? You see, the whole purpose of crucifixion was not just to execute one. There's much swifter ways to do this, but it's to put someone on humiliation and on display and to humble them as they die in weakness. And no doubt when the crucifixion would have started, they would have put a man on the cross and he would have had his strength about him yet and he would have held, hurled out accusations and threats at those who were at his feet and he would have made uh, promises of coming down. But yet as the hours waned on and the infliction of injury were to take their toll, the body would become weaker and weaker and no longer would men cry out with loud voices anymore, but they would whisper and whimper as their life escaped they're broken bodies. See, here's something different. Jesus said about himself, 
No man taketh my life. I lay it down. Jesus in full possession of his faculties, in full possession of who he was and what he came to do, lifted himself up at the end of that ninth hour and he held himself up on those nails and he cried out with a loud voice and he said, It is finished. Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up the ghost. No man took his life laid it down willingly for my sins and for your sins guilty vile and helpless we spotless lamb of God was he full atonement can it be hallelujah what a savior I love verse 38 of our text and the veil was rent from top to bottom the veil was rent now this this if 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 you've been around church and you've seen the temple pictures, this is so important because the temple was built to allow men to come in, but only one man could come in one time a year into the presence of God and have fellowship with God. And it was a high priest that would come into that room and, and do atonement and do work with God. And only one man, one day out of the year, could enter into that veil. That veil blocked away. No light would come into that room. And now the veil, Hebrews tells us, was his body. It was torn in two and hangs open that men may go in and fellowship with God. And it is only through the shed blood and the broken body of Jesus Christ that you and I enter into the presence of God. You will not enter God's presence because of your works, because of your efforts. You will enter because Jesus Christ was crucified, buried, risen, and offers the hope of that atonement for your sin. The veil was torn. The Bible tells us even the graves of some saints were opened. The Romans were shaken by what had just taken place. And this pagan man stands at the foot of the cross in verse number 39, as we read earlier, and says, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, whether this is a theological declaration that this man understood who he was, or it was a statement that there was something different about this man, I believe Mark talk to this man as an eyewitness of what took place. I believe it all changed. The spear is placed into his side. Blood and water come pouring out. He who had given life. The one who stood on the edge of eternity and spoke it all into existence in the first place now hangs dead. A hurried burial is arranged by Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night in John 3. And, and now these two that were not willing to stand boldly with him in his life now want to uh, help him in his death. And they come and they bury him in a tomb, a day of preparation, the Sabbath day. All of this is coming quickly. And Mark, as he always has done, is moving at a rapid pace here. The tomb is sealed. The guard is set. All of this is taking place, and it's interesting that here Joseph of Arimathea comes in and fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that he would have his place with the rich. That a wealthy man lays him in a wealthy tomb where he would have never afforded a place for himself. All the efforts to keep the body from people stealing the body actually prove that nobody could have got in that tomb. Somebody had to come from the inside out. 
So, all hope seems lost for the faithful few who huddle now in fear of their life and grieve for their master. The choir sang for us earlier, low in the grave he lay. Jesus, our Savior, waiting the coming day. Jesus, our Lord. Three days he lay in the tomb. My wife shared a quote with me by Bob Goff, and um, I love this quote. Darkness fell, his friends scattered, hope seemed lost, but heaven started counting to three. And on the first day, in the grave he lay, second day, in the grave he lay, and on the third day, and I love what Matthew 28 says, and as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, our text in chapter 16, if you go a little further in, in verse number 6 of chapter 16, and he saith unto him, Be not affrighted, ye seek Jesus of Nazareth, which was crucified. He is risen, he is not here. Behold the place where they laid him, but go your way. Tell the disciples and Peter that he goeth before you into Galilee. There, there you shall see him, here's the phrase I want you to see, as he said unto you. He told you he was going to rise again. He told you he was going to be victorious. And so go and meet him where he said he would meet you. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. Now in light of this truth this morning. We serve a resurrected Lord. Here's what I want you to do, whether you've been in this church for years or you're visiting this morning as a guest of family, I want you to consider these questions or these statements that I want to make to you this morning. Number one, Jesus really was the Son of God. He is God in flesh. The Son of God who came to save us from our sins. He really did come to die for your sins and for the sins of the human race. He truly did, but God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He paid our sin debt. He really did come to pay our debt. He said in his own words that he came to give his life a ransom for many. This morning, he really did resurrect from the grave. This is not just a story we tell. It's a literal historical event that Jesus Christ came out of the grave, a physical body resurrected from the grave and gives victory to you and I who live in physical bodies that are destined to die that one day, though we be dead, yet shall we live because we believe in who Jesus Christ is. You understand this morning that every person that's ever lived is going to die. And so if you heard the news that somebody beat that rap, maybe you'd want to talk to them about it. Maybe you'd want to examine their claims. How did he conquer death? He did it through the power of who he was, the Son of God, paid our sin debt in full and came back. And now he holds the keys to death, hell, and the grave. He is victorious this morning. Jesus is coming again. One of my favorite accounts is Acts chapter number 11, or 1 rather. In verse 11, Jesus stands before the disciples and he's ascending to heaven in a cloud. And here they are, 
In Acts 11, Jesus' earthly ministry has come to an end. It's over with. He's ascending to heaven, and very soon he will send the Holy Spirit down to the church. And as he ascends to heaven, the disciples are standing there and just looking up. And they're waiting. They're not doing anything. They're just looking up and looking up and looking up. And the Bible tells us that two men came down, and they stood by them in white apparel. In verse 11, they said, which also said, you men of Galilee, why stand you here gazing up into heaven? I love this phrase. This same Jesus, which is taken up from you in heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. When he ascended, he promised that he would return. And he is coming again. He will be victorious. Sin loses. Death loses. Jesus is victorious. And this morning in the final statement, this is something in our culture today of wanting to merge all truth claims together and make them all equally valid and your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Let me say this, this relativism is not true. For something to be truth, something else has to be a lie. And here is the claim that Jesus made, and he made it in no so uncertain terms. And Christian, we must stand on this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And he's not the only one that claimed that for himself. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Peter in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, he says this, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby you must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only hope. There is no other way. And we stand this morning as believers on that truth. I don't stand there with an arrogance of saying, well, I'm better than people that don't know you. No, we stand there with a belief that it is the truth of who Jesus Christ is, what he's done, and what he offers that gives hope to men and women who are lost in their sin. And we go boldly proclaiming that. This morning, let me ask you then, who do you need to tell about Jesus? Who do you need to share the resurrection with this week? A neighbor? A family member? A co-worker? God, give us boldness. And then this morning, if you're here today and you say, Pastor, I, I don't know that I've ever put my faith in who and what Jesus Christ is. This morning, I would call you in humble faith to call on him. The Bible tells us in Romans, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. In humble faith, you can call on him. I'll be happy to take all the time you need, months if necessary, talk with you about who Jesus Let's make him known to our friends, our family, our co-workers. Let's lift him up. He's the only hope this whole world has. Is he worthy? He is. Would you pray with me this morning?